0: Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. Thank you so much for joining in. It really means a lot uh, that you're listening and, and I hope you're enjoying this podcast. I hope you're finding it informative. I hope you find that it's a fair look at some of the things that are going on in our society. And I know that I've really, really enjoyed doing it. I I love having conversations. I love talking to interesting people. If you have been enjoying it and it's been a blessing to you, please do us a huge favor. Make sure to like, make sure to subscribe and make sure to share with other people. Even commenting is very, very helpful. Uh, with algorithms and helping us get this out to other people. So please join us. Please do us a simple favor. Uh, All that I ask is that you help us reach more people with this podcast. So please take a moment, subscribe, like, share, rate, review, and comment. Uh, For the next month in July, I wanted to give you guys kind of an update before we launch into our episode today. So we're going to be taking a a month off, but I'm still going to try to provide really, really great content uh, during the, the month of July, as I take a month off, uh, just to kind of rest recuperate and bring in a great new stable of guests. And by the way, I have got some great, great, I can't announce it yet, but I've got some great news, uh, uh and some great guests lined up starting back in, in August. So I cannot wait to share that stuff with you guys. So definitely make sure to subscribe so that you can be notified about that stuff. But needless to say, uh, for the month of July, we'll be taking off, but I am going to be pr- providing some, some really great content uh, in the month of July. So I'm going to be doing the best of episodes throughout the month of July. And so the first week will be a best of political guests, and then we'll have next week the best of uh, culture guests and the best of causes guests, because you, you probably know at this point, we talk about four things on Indie Thinker: culture, causes, politics, and faith so we're going to do the best of for the four weeks of July that we will not be having the podcast. And then we're going to be doing best of bonus episodes as well. So we'll rehash kind of some of those old bonus episodes, but in a way where you can hear maybe some things that you missed in the past, or maybe just be refreshed about some of the things that we've done, uh, in our bonus episodes in our, but I personally love the bonus episodes. They are really, really uh, a great opportunity for you to hear directly from me. To hear about current events and just to hear one person's take on those things, which I think is really, really valuable, uh, because you can kind of hear what I have to say about it and then you can think about it for yourself, which is what we're after here at Indie Thinker. So for this week, I hope you enjoy the best of political guests. I think you're really, really going to like some of the things, especially if you hadn't heard it the first time uh, that that we have to share in these podcasts. But make sure you're following along because the best of episodes are really, really going to be a great opportunity for you to hear some cool. Comments Content and maybe some things that you've missed in the past. So, without further ado, thanks so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy. So what is like really going on and, and is there something more uh, at play here if there's a missing piece to the puzzle that will help us understand what's really going on in our nation? Why the sudden rise of socialism? Why the rise of this new contingent in the Democratic Party and stuff like that? And that's where what you're doing with Glenn Beck, Beck and Justin Haskin comes in with the book that you guys are working on for The Great Reset. So I want to I want to quote something real quick. Because if there's a hotbed of democracy in the world, it's Canada. Um, And I want to quote Justin Trudeau really quick. Um, And then I want you to kind of uh, tease out for us, if you can, what the Great Reset is. Because if you ask me, I think... this is not just a conspiracy theory, this is um, something that is actively, whether it's kind of like you said, I think you were very careful, uh, if it's something that's actively being done to try to implement socialism, or if it's something where people are just kind of trying to find a middle ground or something like that to try to to uh, uh, to try to help, but one way or the other, it's not gonna work because um, democracy is the thing and uh, the, the capitalist market is the thing that's gotten us in the position that we're in right now, Where, whether you like it or not, ideologically, we're more prosperous than we've ever been as a nation. It's absolutely eradicated hunger around the world and all sorts of other things. So needless to say, um, so here's this quote for what may be happening behind the scenes um, and why there's such weirdness with some of the things that we're seeing on the news media. So uh, this is Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada. He said, this pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset, This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine. Now, we're already hearing important words here. Reset, reimagine, and that this is things that they were trying to plan before the pandemic. And now they're capitalizing on the pandemic. All right. So. to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges, like, now here's some more buzzwords, extreme poverty, inequality, and climate change. Now. Even as a layman, so I want the expert opinion here. Even as a layman, when I read that, that's very unsettling to me, not to mention Bill C-16 and all sorts of other stuff that's going on in Canada. That's, and you guys at the Heartland Institute are, are at kind of the epicenter of as a conservative think tank about things like this. So I want to hear um, what you have to say. What does he mean when he's talking about a reset? And, and when he's talking about uh, rejiggering the the economic systems that exist in our world.
1: Yeah. Um I know of that quote. Um I, it was actually the thing that caused the great reset to finally start trending on Twitter and yeah. it, it really like turned conservative sites on it. So Justin Haskins and I we kind of we kind of pat ourselves on the back for being a little bit able to see what the next step is, right? Instead of just reacting to the outrage du jour of uh, what's right. going on like today, we kind of like like to look a little bit down in the future and what to expect in the future. So some of the, the seeds of this, we actually talked about in a Glenn Beck book that we worked with, the one that came out in April arguing with socialists. Um, and we kind of saw some of this coming and it was quickly thereafter that book came out that our sites got turned to this Great Reset thing. And we've been talking about it since June. And it was Justin Trudeau's comments just like a month ago that actually seemingly pushed uh, our message through into the mainstream. So um, let me follow that quote up by Justin Trudeau with a couple of other quotes. So this this is from Klaus Schwab, who is founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum. To achieve a better outcome, the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies from education to social contracts and working conditions. Every country from the United States to China must participate And every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. Uh, Here's another quote from Secretary General of the United Nations. The great reset is a welcome recognition Uh, That this human tragedy must be a wake-up call. We must build more equal, inclusive, and sustainable economies and societies that are more resilient in the faces of pandemics, climate change, and many other global changes we face. And I've got like several more here. Well, can we just stop real quick and I just say, wow, like really we have
0: to take some time because the news cycle is so fast these days and information is just like coming at us like nobody's business, uh, not to mention our thumbs are constantly on Instagram and Facebook. We, we, we should, to, can we just stop for a moment and just say that is uh, insane, that is crazy that we're sitting here having these conversations and that these men are out in the open saying these things. Now... My sinking suspicion, and that's why I started with socialism, is that this is a backdoor for socialism. But, um, but I don't want to jump too far ahead. I just got to stop and say, guys, we got to pay attention to this. We got we to
1: think about what these people are saying, not just hear it. Well, and that is exactly what got our attention. Uh, Justin Haskins, he calls me up, I think it was back in like May, and he's like, have you heard of this Great Reset thing? I said, no. So he's like, well, listen to all these quotes, and he starts reading off these ones that I'm talking about. Klaus Schwab, uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, person from uh, Executive Director of Greenpeace, uh, Prince Charles. Some people of the International Monetary Fund, all using the same language, all talking about this Great Reset. So that's what raised our antenna on all of this idea. So we started looking into it. And yes, it is absolutely a back tour towards, I guess we can call it socialism. Like I said, that term is kind of abstract as you look at it throughout history. But it's it's no doubt they're not underselling it. This is their a kind of a globalist plan to overhaul the way the economy and in turn society acts uh how it's structured. But yeah, they they use all of these different, you know, buzzwords, I think you called them. Instead of talking about socialism, they talk about shareholder capitalism. Instead of talking about uh, government spending, they talk about investments. And talk, instead of talking about government mandates, they talk about private sector involvement. So all of these things, when you dig into it and you actually sift through their plans and their literature, it's these statements are not underselling it. It really is an overhaul of how society operates. And- Uh, you know, you mentioned my podcast in the tank podcast, we cover public policy. So I can get into some of like the details of this stuff and really show you what their plan is uh, to how to manipulate the economy and society. And it's, it's pretty astonishing when you get into it, but, but there is no doubt, like how, how alarming it is. The amount of people that are in on this seemingly talking from the same playbook, I mean, you even have, and uh, I can get into this as well, Joe Biden saying some of these same things, John yeah. Kerry saying, saying some of these same things, Al Gore saying some of these same things. So yeah, it's, it's absolutely something that we have to pay attention to. And you're right, it's, it's difficult for a concept that's this big and complex to kind of yeah. fit into that, uh, that uh, soundbite news cycle. Uh, you know, that's totally focused on just kind of that outrage du jour instead of like these bigger things going on.
0: Right. Before we dig into the weeds with some of that stuff, I think, I think I want to just step back for a moment and just kind of ask you about the way in which this is being implemented. So, um, I think it was Rahm Emanuel who said, never waste a good crisis. And we've heard like other Democrats. yeah. And, yeah, and I see you shaking your head because you're like, yep, 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 we've been there. Um, and you've talked about this. So people need to check out your podcast, obviously, and listen to go a little bit deeper. But um, for the sake of my audience, I'm just thinking to myself... This is what first comes to mind for me, is that we have these politicians, even Hillary Clinton, I believe, said something, if not the exact same thing. Um, uh, don't quote me on that, but but the idea that we never want to waste a good crisis and that now, while America is down, the rest of the world is down because of what is inevitably a global uh, crisis for every single person, and you know, counter to popular belief, Donald Trump didn't create this virus. Uh, He's not responsible for the deaths uh, of this virus. Um, uh, Fact check, it actually came from China last time I I checked. But but the point is, is that like, so to now at this time, be using these things when we're at a weak moment to try to capitalize
1: on them is a kind of frightening thing. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, this is the the COVID-19 pandemic, the lockdowns associated with it, the crippling of the economy due to the lockdowns, not necessarily the disease itself, but the government's response to the disease has definitely opened the door to to this type of radical uh, restructuring of the way that our economy works. And I actually think that this is something that they've been going for uh, for a while. And instead of COVID, which obviously just came up in the last year or so, they were trying to use climate change as their justification for an yes. overhaul of how the economy runs. Right. And that was kind of proven by the the, the concept of the Green New Deal. And, uh, you know, I I'm in this you know, this, uh, this industry, this, that talks about, you know, public policy nonstop. So the green new deal is super familiar to me. Not sure it's super familiar to you and your listeners here, but that is the AOC proposed legislation, $95 trillion plan over 10 years to uh, take us away from all natural, natural gas and, and uh, fossil fuels. And instead.
0: Yeah. And clean burning nuclear energy.
1: Right, right. Get away from that. Instead, uh, you know, strap us to these the wind and solar power. But then it also included things like universal health care, jobs guarantees, free college, pretty much anything under the liberal wish list. Right. And I always was confused by that because it was like, you know, if you were really sounding the alarm on the world's coming to an end and we have to stop it at all costs, why would you spend one second or one penny? Uh, trying to get something like universal health care, right? It seems like we have bigger fish to fry than trying to bog down the debate with those types of things. But what was revealed during all of that, I believe it was AOC's, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's, like secretary of something. And he said, oh, you were looking at the Green New Deal as an environmental thing? We always looked at it as a changing the entire economy thing. So like that to me was the biggest illustration of this idea that they were trying to use climate change as this justification to overhaul, uh, you know, the economy and society that has failed to work. We know just with the Heartland Institute and our focus on climate change policy and energy policy, that when it comes to like priorities, especially during election years, climate change is like near the bottom, like Mm -hmm. not a whole lot of people think that that's the most important thing. So these people that are pushing these agendas have seen that climate change has kind of been a failure when it comes to using it to justify these. COVID-19 has blown down the door. They have been able to get more stuff enacted using COVID-19 as justification than they could have dreamt with climate change. So, yeah, the, the Rahm Emanuel quote, don't let a good crisis go to waste – that couldn't be more true when it comes to this, uh, this COVID-19. And you can see that in these quotes by these World Economic Forum people and the advocates of the Great Reset. They continuously use COVID-19 as justification for, for a radical change or whatever they have to say about uh, the economy. So there's no doubt about that.
0: Yeah, so that dishonesty is the thing that I think is the most unsettling thing. It's, hard, it's a hard uh, feeling to put into words, but I think it's a feeling that all of us are feeling, just kind of this inward ickiness of just uncertainty and weirdness, because it doesn't seem uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem right. It is dishonest if these guys are doing that. So maybe this is unfair and you've been incredibly fair. I love the way that you're trying to kind of push aside just outrage um, and get to the facts. Um, I love that. Um, So maybe it's unfair to try to question the motives of somebody um, because that's maybe something that we can't really know. But when we have a dishonest tactic being used in order to try to do something that they say is good, it leaves you wondering, is there more to the story than what we're seeing? you know what I'm saying? Because, so like, the, the thing is that, like, okay, so you're using um, ecology and you're using global warming as a way of just kind of trying to uh, get across some policy ideas. But those policy ideas, they're benign, they're for the betterment of the people, and we're just trying to do the best thing that we possibly can at any cost. But that's an unsettling thing. To do,
1: Yeah, I mean, no doubt. I mean, think about if the if the Green New Deal were to pass, and right. this idea of like a, a, um, a federal program for free college was passed because of the threat of climate change, right. Like, How do those things connect to each other? So yeah, it's definitely this idea that they're using, you know, the alarm of one thing to push a further agenda for, yeah. the, you know, for the liberal agenda. Uh, but the Great Reset, i mean we 've probably talked around it quite enough. I think we can probably get into exactly what it is uh, if you 're interested, but uh, the great reset is a proposal by the world economic Forum and the World Economic Forum is a uh, i mean I brought up u n it's it 's a similar kind of concept it 's this you know global uh, organization that has input from You know, academics, CEOs, business leaders, political leaders, all of that stuff. You might be most familiar with it. Uh, They're the ones that host the Davos, the yearly Davos meeting in Davos, Switzerland, where they bring in all of these people and have talks about this, that, and the other. But uh, it is a so the Great Reset is a proposal by the World Economic Forum to essentially overhaul the economy and society and how it's structured. And there's two main parts of this. the first part is they want to create a massive global network of social programs. So this is like the Green New Deal, the jobs guarantee, universal health care, everything on the progressive wish list. That that's kind of like the given. Okay. Like that's actually the the least crazy part of all of this. The larger part, in my opinion, is the is their plan to kind of create how corporations change how corporations operate. And the biggest thing, and this might be where I'm getting into the weeds a little bit, uh, but they have this concept of ESG scores. So this is environmental, social, and governance standards. This is a concept that's been bandied about a lot, especially when it comes to climate change. But uh, the best way to think of it is like the Chinese social credit score. Are you familiar with that? Uh, No, but I think I know where you're going. Yeah, so uh, one of these things that was going around probably several months ago was the Chinese social credit score. And that was like the government giving all of its citizens a social credit score that you get points taken off depending on if you broke the laws or caught jaywalking or going on websites that you're not supposed to or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And depending on your social credit score dictates your level of freedom in that country, whether or not you can like uh, buy. And this is
0: actively being done in China. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, they've got they've got a couple of different pilot programs, but it's specifically big in the western portion of the country where they China has a problem with the uh, Muslim Uyghur population. There's I mean, that's a whole nother topic (laughs) talking about labor camps and all of that. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, it's basically trying to use these metrics to give a score to citizens. This ESG thing is like a Chinese social credit score, but for businesses. So they would, um, and the World Economic Forum actually has this plan of what this ESG metrics would be already on their website. We've looked through it in length on one of our podcast episodes, but basically instead of businesses being judged Uh, on profit or whether or not they provide a good, um, a a good or service at a reasonable cost to consumers that like that product, instead of being judged on those standard free market uh, principles, they would get a ESG score based on gender and race composition of their governing boards, greenhouse gas emissions, ecological sensitivity of their supply chains, workforce diversity, gender pay equality, Community investment total number and rate of new employee hires during the reported period by age group, gender, and region, and literally dozens if not a hundred other metrics just like this and then these businesses, depending on you know how they score on all of these different metrics, they have an ESG score that gives them um, more or greater accessibility to uh, different investments, government funds anything like that. So instead of a business being judged based on how good of a business it is, it's being judged based on how uh, good it does with these social justice causes and climate change things. So that's kind of the heart of this. So instead of like the individual consumer being the driver of the economy, it's instead this elite board of people that are constructing what these ESG scores are composed of. It's a total separation of uh, of free market towards something that, to me, resembles more of a 21st century socialism that's being judged by some board of elites. That's what the Great Reset is.
0: Wow. So what, what, obviously, if China is buying into this kind of stuff, what um, real power does Davos have and the people that gather there to implement this uh, beyond maybe just the Communist China uh, organiz- uh, regime, or or maybe you could come up with a couple of other here and there. Uh, is it a threat to America, I guess, is probably the biggest question.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that I mean, we have a couple of things going for us in America that uh, usually, you know, European countries are more of the canary in the coal mine. And uh, we can kind of see where we're heading based on what's going on there. But we always seem to kind of lag behind that. So we do have that going for us. However, the thing about this, especially because of the World Economic Forum and how it's kind of positioned itself, it has buy-in from uh, major U.S. corporations, uh, specifically like MasterCard Microsoft, all are buying into this, this Great Reset, this ESG structure of judging businesses. So we're actually further down the line than you would imagine. So, so the, the best way to look at it and how it would actually be implemented, so this comes from a World Economic Forum article. It says, the second component of the Great Reset agenda would ensure that investments advance shared goals, such as equality and sustainability. Here, the large-scale spending programs that many governments are implementing represent a major opportunity for progress. So then the author lists off a bunch of like these expensive recovery plans, COVID recovery plans that are going on in a number of different countries. Rather than using these funds, as well as investments from private entities and pension funds to fill the cracks of the old system, we should use them to create a new one that is more resilient, equitable, and sustainable in the long run. This means, for example, building green urban infrastructure and creating incentives for industries to improve their track record on environmental, social, and governance metrics. So this just flat out says... That let's say the Cares Act, you know, the the trillions of dollars Recovery Act that was passed in the United States, that money uh, under this proposal here, that money would go to businesses that have higher ESG scores uh, disproportionately. Yeah, right. So that's that's the way that all of this is is going to be carried out. It's through the government printing presses. You know, if you if if the government is giving you money shouldn't you be contributing to these collectivist goals that we can all agree on, whether it's com- combating climate change or addressing some of these social justice things? That, that's the way that this is all going to uh, come to fruition. And the, like I said with the, the Green New Deal, I mean, that that failed miserably. They did not get that passed, right? Because, again, climate change isn't highly ranking when it comes to uh, priorities on people's yeah, lists. We're not that ridiculous yet. But – COVID-19 did blow open that door. And like I said, trillions of dollars right off the money uh, printing presses just being poured into the economy left and right. And this is suggesting that in the future, when it comes to any other additional government spending, uh, and I suspect that it'll be more on climate change in the future, that it should be directed disproportionately towards these companies that have or corporations that have higher ESG scores. So this is the way that they're going to try to control uh, society moving forward. It's by, you know, when you've got trillions of dollars being poured into the economy by the government, suddenly the government becomes the most important customer to these corporations. They care less about whether or not you're buying, you know, one of their computers or something. But if they can make sure to get $10 million from the government being poured into it. That's where they're going to turn their concern to. And that's why I think that some of these big corporations are buying into this.
0: Yeah, it's a full embrace of nanny state. They're going to say, like, if we're going to be the nanny state, then we're going to give you a report card and we're literally going to be your nanny. Absolutely. Um, and, I,
1: and, and, and then think about this. Yeah. To me, this is – now, maybe this is a little bit more the conspiracy side of me. But, um, you know, this concept of the ESG scores – there's there's nothing about that that's set in stone, right? It's always subject to change. Barbara, so yeah. what's what's stopping future versions of this ESG scores to incorporate uh, free speech things? You know whether or not it's uh, tech companies allowing what they label as hate speech, or you know what if it has something to do with the Second Amendment what if you get a very lower ESG score because your credit card company has some business dealings with some firearm manufacturers? So, I mean, they haven't suggested this as of yet, but what's stopping that from being part of this ESG metrics in the future?
0: I know. I think that's, yeah, no, I think that's an important point. Uh, To be honest with you, it has been a little bit of my concern that, um, uh, here's conspiracy theory number two, um, <clears throat> maybe 15. I don't know. I don't know where we're at at this point, but, <laughs> um, but I'm, it's been my concern that the black lives matter movement has a potential for the same kind of thing in this regard. They're coming for the police today, which by every objectifiable standard is not systemically racist, whatever that even means. I had a conversation already earlier today with somebody about uh, why I believe uh, systemic racism is a cleverly designed term to do absolutely nothing um, except exploit black people um so that that's a loaded uh, suggestion that i won't even go in any further than that on uh but but simply to put put i'm not even saying this about necessarily like the patrice colors uh of black lives matter but just in terms of a slippery slope of what black lives matter is suggesting and how the media is using it as a tool right now rather than to actually literally help black people. Because it's very clear, the vast majority of African Americans in our country don't even want the police defunded. They want the police more in their area to help them out more. This it's, it's specifically not to truly help black lives. I mean, Don Lemon was about the most honest person you possibly can be on this when he said, well, it's not about all black lives, it's just about black lives that are affected by the police. So, I mean, it's just, it's like, and, and all I'm saying is, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to open up a can of worms. All I'm trying to say is that, um, that it, there's this slippery slope with all of these things. And my concern as a Christian has been, you're coming for the police today um, with bogus evidence. What keeps you from coming after Christians? Because the left has already been very, very, um, you know, very obvious with what they think about Christians for the vast majority, for the vast majority of, their, of their tenure. Uh, and they think that Christians are bigots. They think that Christians participate in hate speech because we believe that marriage is between a a man and a woman, Uh, you know, and and you can go on and on and on. So I'm just thinking to myself, okay, so now is the ESG card coming for Christians?
1: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, again, what's stopping what's stopping them adding different metrics on in the future? I mean, whether it's attacking the First Amendment, the Second Amendment or go down the line like I really don't know. I, I really don't. And that to me is like the scariest part of it. Like the, the list itself is just nonsensical uh, if you go through it. And this is from their website. But yeah, like what's stopping that list from getting even worse or more draconian or authoritarian in the future? You know, especially when the um, when the justification for it. Uh, right now it's the COVID 19 to to kind of carry out some of this stuff. But in the future, yeah. when they're talking about the world's gonna be coming to an end because of climate change, it's like, what's more important than the world coming to an end? If the world's coming to an end, that could justify anything. Absolutely anything. So right. yeah, I don't I I if a system like this gets put in place, absolutely it'll get worse and worse as it goes on. There's no way that it's gonna get better. And once a system like this gets in place. It's impossible to get rid of.
0: Well, which is a page from the playbook of socialism, if you ask me. I don't, I'm not an expert like you in it, but it sure seems that baby steps is how you get socialism. And it's always with a promise to help people, but it ends up backfiring.
2: You're from the womb of your mother, with the genetic makeup of your parents and whatever else God gave you. You're actually the society who divide us, you know, via the intersectionality yeah. defines you and attribute to you characteristics. So to begin with, because of your color of your skin, and now it becomes worse because you're also a white male, uh, you're already an oppressor. And everybody else who doesn't, is not uh, white, is by definition, is oppressed. Not because they experienced any oppression, and not because they had uh, anything in their background that uh, make them being oppressed, but just by the mere fact of some external characteristics but you know also the absurdity uh, you know of this is you are born like that and according to their philosopher critical race theory it's uh, nothing that you can redeem or nothing that you can change over your lifetime because obviously you're gonna you know dye the same color so i always ask the question if that's the case because of your defined by those external characteristics. Why are we having all this uh, uh, training of diversity, inclusi- inclusivity, and uh, you know, um, DIA uh, or uh, equ- equity? Why are we having all this training? Because it's gonna, not gonna change. You're always gonna be, you yeah. know, that carrying those personal characteristics. You might decide at some point to change your, uh, you know, because there is gender fluidity to change your gender. But in my book, there are two sexes, men and a woman. If you in your life, you wanna, you know, exhibit different kinds of behavior or wanna, uh, you know, internalize some other kinds of feeling, that's fine. That's your issue. The problem is that you're coming with all this package and dumping, out, dumping it on little kids, very little kids, and brainwashing them to believe things that are not. Uh, it, it's impossible for an adult to understand. All of a sudden, the kid, uh, you know, go to school and they tell him, you know what? In kindergarten, you're not a boy, regardless of your biology, you're not, and you're not a girl. You can get up in the morning, just whatever you feel like. That's yeah. what you are. So all those issues of, uh, uh, you know, are uh, all uh, connected. Um, uh, the problem with this, uh, you know, as you described in the case that we uh, have, uh, in Las Vegas, uh, is it's not theoretical. They are imposing behaviors on you. They are imposing on you to change your whole inside and the way you think about yourself and the way you feel about yourself. How do you think a kid that is a, in kindergarten is tall because he's white, is an oppressed? I mean,
0: and and by the way, let me interject real quick and just ask because I think immediately people will want to know: Is this happening in kindergarten? So do you know of specific cases where they're teaching gender ideology in kindergarten?
2: Oh my God! Everywhere. <clears throat> Look at the books uh, in uh, my my kids' school last year. I pulled them out of the school. I put them in a different uh, uh, school, but uh, not a, a private school. Uh, the book that they assigned for kindergarten uh, through third grade called a kid book about race, racism. And when you open that book, uh, you are pulled reading each line and, uh, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a kid book. It's just uh, a few words and big pictures on each page. So indeed uh, you know, on our Facebook, one of the early things that we posted is a video of a, really very sweet, attractive, young black teacher. Uh, She's been teaching for 10 years, teaching K through one. So she's teaching really kindergarten and first grader and all smiley, really very sweet. And she's telling how you actually can, can teach vocabulary to the children and the vocabulary is oppressed and oppressor and racism and uh, systemic racism and privilege. And you ask yourself, you know, those ki- is that, what do you mean by you can teach a vocabulary? Of course they can learn the word, but it's not about learning words, about learning the meaning of the words. So that's why they do all those exercises in order for you to internalize the meaning of the word. It's not just... And in fact, in that that video, that specific video, she's saying that you can teach it to three and four years old even. You don't have to wait until kindergarten. So indeed, it's happening from a very, very young age.
0: So let's let's just talk about this then, because... The, I, again, I want to fight for this because I think that this is the important thing to realize about all of this because there's a wide spectrum of people in America, and God bless america. that's that's what we're all about. Um, but i'm uh, so i don't I really want to be careful that. Um, anybody listening right now really understands this is not a right and left issue. This is a question about, uh, this is not a political issue, even though it's been incredibly politicized. Maybe there should be political conversation about it. I'm not saying that, but it is not a political issue in my mind, and here's why. Um, I think we have to go back to our definition what education is all about, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, anybody who knows any just basic history knows that education in America started just as simply as this: people were taught to read so that they could read the Bible, so that they could go home, take a Bible, and they could read it for themselves. Now, thankfully. It's evolved beyond that, and education has taken on uh, uh, new disciplines, and and we're all the better for that, but something else has happened as education has evolved, and I saw this on scholastic.com. I saw this on the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, as well as study.com, that the definition for education has evolved to the point where now the educational world thinks it's their role to help create good citizens. Now, that may sound innocent enough, but the reality is, is I think that ultimately, What they're talking about there, and what we're seeing, is is that now the education system, and the public education system, is creating um, is creating morality. Now that was typically resigned to the church, and 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 I think that that's permissible because it is their it is the parents' decision whether or not they take their kids to church. But ultimately, I think it goes even back to a more basic tenet, which is this: is that parents are the ones who are uniquely qualified to teach their kids morality, not the education system. Now I know why the education system did it probably, because parents were not doing it. They were not fulfilling their role of helping their kids become better citizens. But I still think the problem exists is that education uh, professionals, teachers, are not uniquely qualified as parents are to help their kids become moral, thinking, good human beings. That is the role of the nuclear family, which, by the way, I think is so very interesting that, um, that they're calling the idea of the nuclear family a white supremacist idea and something that, even though BLM has taken it off their website because they got a bunch of heat for it, still something they believe in the destruction of the nuclear family. The
2: traditional family.
0: Yeah. So what is your take on um, the education system, what it's really supposed to be doing um, instead of what it is presently doing?
2: You know, I have no problem with uh, the issue of, uh, uh, you know, developing a good citizen or whatever they define it. You know what the problem is? It's how they define it and whose role to do what. It's the same with, you know, we are all for equity. We are all for diversity. We're all for inclusivity, but... According to their dictionary, it's literally the opposite meaning. They talk about being anti-racist, but they're actually racist. What Martin Luther Luther King Jr. talked about is anti-racism. What the teacher unions today and the BLM and all those people on that side of the argument is bringing to our school is actually racism. They call it anti-racism, but it's actually racism. They hijack the dictionary, they redefine the word. So it's again, with what does it mean to be a good citizen? According to their definition, which usually it's the opposite of what good citizen means. So here we have to be really very specific and look at the details, not be caught up with the title. Indeed, uh, in in 1979, the Department of Education was created. When it was created, if you look back and look at what it's written specifically in that act, it says that the primary responsibility for educating the children is the parents. It says the parents have the primary responsibility for the education of the children and the state and localities have the responsibility to support the parents in that role uh what's happening today is uh, totally the opposite the school have been hijacked our kids have been literally kidnapped and there are there are uh you know um a captive audience in those schools the parents indeed uh you said it in one of your statements uh, for many different reasons and we can go get into some of them but the parents almost like um withdrew, I'm not saying all, because there are parents who do homeschooling and parents that are involved, but to a large extent, uh, there was such a big trust in the schools, in the teachers, that they have the best interests of our kids, that that trust actually let us pull back and not be involved enough and what you have seen usually in schools the parents kind of involvement in school is fundraising for the kid for the school doing social event like uh, the social dancing uh, you know events for the kids or uh, you know doing this sale of uh, you know, um, uh, g- gift paper wrapping for Christmas and cards. That's what school. Well, that's what the involvement of parents, uh, you know, was reduced to. And now, when parents started realizing uh, of what's happening in the school, uh, much of it thanks to the Zoom calls, uh, was, which was imposed on all of us uh, through the COVID nineteen restrictions, uh, they've been horrified. But again, here the school, the teachers union, barge into a very much open door and has been transforming our school gradually as parents has been really sitting back and uh, realizing that, uh, you know, uh, now that it's almost like a total transformation. Um, uh, however, that's really, if I look at what our really goal the primary goal, and I said it in our documents, is to get parents back into getting involved with the education of their children. They can no longer, the trust has been broken. The parents trust in the school and the school system has been broken. And in fact, you said that you are conservative. Uh, In fact, what has been happening in school boards, those are the you know, entities that make the decision about the curriculum that are eventually, uh, you know, being implemented in school. The school board has been totally dominated by uh, uh, by Democrats and by people on the very left side, even of the Democrat party. And, uh, and during election time for board members, you know, even I would confess for myself, I didn't know who running. I didn't know anything about it. I was so consumed with the education of my kids on a very personal level, but never really realizing even the role of the school board in determining what my kids are gonna be consumed and what kind of brainwash is going in schools. So that's where, as I said, parents have not been taking the role. And that's what I'm doing in my movement, trying to mobilize and empower parents and teach them how to get involved, how to get, uh, you know, get control back of what the kids are being taught. Remember, we are the taxpayers. It's our money. It's the absurdity is taking our money and turning our kids against us. They are breaking families because we are hearing from a lot of parents who kids already graduated, even college. They're coming crying to us. I lost my kid. It was a good kid. I taught them good values as long as they were at home. And then they are gone. And there are a lot of parents with very tense relationship with kids or no relationship at all. We would like to prevent it. Remember what Lenin said, give me your kids for eight years and I'll turn them into good Bolsheviks. And that's exactly what's happening now. They took our kids and that's what they're gonna turn them into.
0: Yeah, well, I think at the end of the day, the one thing we better be able to agree upon is that our children are precious. They are the future, and it is the parents' role to to protect them. So let's talk a little bit about um, what that looks like on a on a real world scenario. Because I was. Thinking to myself about your personal story, uh, but then also to the potential story of other parents who maybe have tried, or uh, I, li- I can think of two categories of uh, hypothetical parents, parents that have tried, but have been stonewalled by the school district, parents who are afraid to try because they do not want to be labeled as racist. So I know you in your own personal experience, you, um, when you first brought this to the attention of the school board, what was their reaction?
2: Uh, They did not react until this day. However, you know, because I wrote a letter to the superintendent and the school board as well as to the principal and nobody reacted. And that's when I decided to post it on the Facebook of the parents uh, of the school. And that's when I was lynched. And I literally told them in one of my comments that they are lynching me. Uh, but uh,
0: So explain that. What is it, What do you mean by lynching? What happened?
2: The calling names, racist, bigot, uh, how dare you, not in our school, and, and remove me right away from, take it down, take it down. I mean, they were like a, such a, and in, indeed it was taken down after, you know, uh, maybe a dozen or so parents uh, were ostracizing me with all those beautiful comments. Uh, at the same time, I got, this was the public lynching. At the same time, I was getting a lot of private messages with incredible support. Uh, congr- <laughs> Congratulations. Note me the privateness on those of those messages. messages. Exactly. That. That's the two theme in all of those messages that I got. And a lot of them was um, support and congratulation. And the second one, we're afraid to speak. We're afraid to talk. and And that's when I really, I thought it's insane. And I actually... Uh, was kicked out of one group that I was a member of in our community because they were policing. They are policing you in every aspect of your life to see if you make comment anywhere or somebody heard you make comment. So I was removed from another group and I posted it to other, two other community groups, uh, Facebook pages. And they took, one did not even post it. I just posted my letter. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. There's not even one single syllabus in it that talks about, uh, ra- that is a racist. Uh, and, and I was removed uh, from there as well. Um, that's when I decided to, uh, that the, in this United State of America, and I'm talking even as an immigrant, we are people from all over the world look up to United States as yep. the land of free and the land of, uh, you know, with the, the First Amendment, free of speech. And, and here people are terrified of speaking. Yeah. Uh, that's to me looked absurd. That's when I approached the Washington Free Beacon. They did the first article. Tucker heard about it and then they invited me, started to get more media attention. But this is really uh, so absurd. You know what, I can even demonstrate it through my uh, really personal story. Um, I'm Israeli. Uh, my husband is American. And uh, my parents uh, moved from Iraq to Israel. They were actually had to flee for their life in 1950 because after the Israel independence war, all the Arab countries were very, uh, uh, you know, uh, fighting Israel. And, um, and Jews really had to flee for their life. So most of the Jews of Iraq who have been there for thousands of years. This is after the, you know, the Israelites were expelled to Babylon. So my parents were one of those Jews that never left. 120,000 Jews were living in Iraq at that time. Most of them came to Israel. Now, as a Jew, I'm considered white. But But if I was Muslim in Iraq, I'm actually a person of color and I'm oppressed. But because my religion, I automatically change and I become to them white and oppressor.
3: Right. Right?
2: Is that absurd or not? And all Jews basically are originally from Israel. We are yeah. from the Middle East. And Middle East considered uh, oppressed population because they're people of color. So that's how, you know, the absurdity uh, of this whole thing. I would tell you another absurdity. Because if you can decide on that huge, huge spectrum of gender identity uh, or gender fluidity, if you can decide any moment that you are one or another or whatever you want, any, why can't you decide you're white, that you are black, in fact? You can determine whatever you are. You can decide, you don't have to change your religion. I'm a Muslim. I'm a Buddhist. I'm, you can actually define yourself the way you want. If you can, if you can define your biology, your sign actually, that a male and a woman, whatever you want. Why can't you define any other characteristic the way you wish? This really reflects the absurdity of this whole uh, theories. Uh, yeah. The same as, you know, only white can be racist. And as a Jew, we know what happened in, yeah. uh, with the Nazis. How can we be racist? All, all over the, you know, throughout the centuries, the Jews more than any other group experienced racism and the consequences of racism. So how come the Jews are the top pyramid of being racist? Yeah. Uh, so that, that's the thing. That's mean black cannot be racist. I'll give you some data from the FBI. According to uh, the uh, 2018 report of the FBI, there are 2.7, uh, there are more, 2.7% more uh, um, crimes against uh, hate crimes against Jews than against black. And there are 2.2 more against Jews, then again, Muslim. Yeah. So the Jews are the, mo- the, the group of population in this country that experience more hate crime than any other group, but still we are considered oppressors. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the, the absurdity here is uh, uh, in every way, but the problem again, two things, you cannot discuss with them uh, logically any issue because yeah. they right away go to the emotion and B, they label you. And if there is concern for me, is for us people on our side, why are we afraid of being called racist? We know they hijack those words. I don't care when they call me racist, so what? Look at yourself in the mirror. Think about yourself. Are you racist? So they call you racist. They will call you thief. They will call you murderer. Did you murder anybody? You didn't. So why do you, call, why do you care if they call you murder? Why do you care about how they label you? You know what they are. So that's why I'm telling parents, don't be afraid.
0: What we want to talk about today is going to mainly, I think, um, circle around the idea of Trump's ban and big tech, uh, just generally speaking, specifically what's taking place with Donald Trump. Um, But we want to do so for a much broader reason. We want to do so because we believe that there are implications uh, for what just took place for each and every one of us. That's black, white, red, yellow, uh, left, right, center, whoever you are. This is a conversation that needs to be had, and we need to be having these conversations. So um, so once again, it's really, really good that you were able to come on at this time and kind of talk about this uh, with us. So that said, I want to talk to you about Trump's ban. Um, and, uh, and I just kinda wanna get your take on it. So I'm gonna read to you something and then I'd like for you to respond to it if you could. So what I'm gonna read to you is this is a blog post or at least the official uh, statement that was released by Twitter for why Donald Trump was banned. Okay, so I'm sure you're familiar with it, but for the sake of our listeners, I want to go ahead and read the tweets that got him banned according to Twitter itself. So this is from Twitter. So on January 8th, 2021, President Donald J. Trump tweeted, the 75,000 great American patriots who voted for me, America first, and make America great again, will have a giant voice long onto the future they will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape, or form. Shortly thereafter, the president tweeted, to all of those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th. Okay, so that is why he was banned. And then they go on to say this. Due to the ongoing tensions in the United States and an uptick in global conversation in regards to the people who violently stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021, these two tweets must be read in the context of broader events in the country. So I wanna first of all talk about that assertion that it should be read in broader uh, context and the ways in which the president's statements can be mobilized by different audiences. Then I want to talk to you about that statement. Um, Including to incite violence as well as the context of the pattern of behavior from this account in recent weeks after assessing the language in these tweets against our glorification of violence policy. We have determined that these tweets are in violation of the glorification of violence policy and the user at Real Donald Trump should be immediately, permanently suspended from the service. Okay. Um, I know I'm going to ask you to do something that may not be fair, but I'm going to ask you to put yourself in Twitter's shoes, at least from the perspective of their own assertion. Did Donald Trump break their policy?
3: I don't know. Can you read all that again? (laughs) 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 That was a
1: lot to absorb.
3: Yeah. Um, In fact, um, we could probably spend the entire hour reading the entire terms of service of Twitter, which are completely incomprehensible by design. So
0: maybe not a fair question, but...
3: Right but look the of all the things that Donald Trump has said on Twitter that barely moves the needle that might be a 2 on a on a 1 to 10 scale as far as um you know getting close to the line of violating terms of service or saying something um you know alarming or or frankly dangerous uh it's it's obvious that that Twitter it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like getting an Oscar for a lifetime achievement award. Like, uh, <laughs> like, um, like Al Pacino, right. He got, uh, he got an Oscar, I think for a of a woman.
0: No, that that's Cuomo. Cuomo is, uh, Al Pacino.
3: That's right. That's right. And so, yeah, I, I think uh, Trump basically got a lifetime achievement award ban from Twitter. Um, it's obvious that every that the things that he had said there on Twitter are not even among the most alarming or "quote unquote" dangerous or unsafe things that Donald Trump's ever said on Twitter. It's because, um, well, I think they've wanted to do this for a long time, and um, you know, we are kind of on a knife's edge right now in this country with our nerves. And uh, you know, uh, so I'm not surprised by it at all. But it's it's actually not a very good thing when the president of the United States is is banned from one of the largest social media uh, uh, platforms in the world, in which he has used it to communicate directly with the people. I think that's quite troubling.
0: Yeah, I'm going to be a little less fair than you with my next question. Than you were with my next question. Um, Do you think he? Why do you think? Uh, they banned him because it's hard for me to believe that they banned him because of the aggregate of bad tweets. I don't think that's why they banned him, but maybe I'm wrong, and I'm and maybe I'm being a little bit fishy there. But do you think that's sincerely why they banned him? Is
3: that why? Well, I don't think there's anything in those two tweets that they cited that's yeah. worth banning somebody for. So I think it's quite obvious that it's a it's a lifetime achievement award ban for for Donald Trump. I mean. Objectively, there's nothing in those two tweets, especially the second one. I mean, why even include that? I mean, that he's not going to the inauguration. Oh God, ban him! You know, I mean, come on. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't pass the smell test, and frankly, it's frankly an insult to our intelligence.
0: Yeah, I, the reason, and so so we know not that that changes what you just said because it doesn't. Uh, there is a. Of course, people on the the left will say that there's this long-standing tradition of presidents going to an inauguration, and uh, that's why this is troubling because of the broader context of the fact that he's not endorsing this election, and that's what he's alluding to. But um, but what would you say to this? Because here's my real question: is is this a a, a wink and a nod, a tip of the hat to um, to those who are in charge now, to the Democratic Party who have been on their case? um consistently and this is probably a right left thing because we can get into section 230 in a moment but um is this a way to get them off their back uh,
3: is this currying favor with them currying favor with the democrats that are yes. ascending into power yes absolutely <laughs> you know it's it's quite obvious and it's i think it's been stated um almost overtly that look, you know, we don't need Trump anymore. Um, let's just get rid of him. Um, and it would also obviously please those that are going to be chairing the committees, uh, those who are going to be deciding whether Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996 should be applied uh, and how it should be applied. Um, and if you want to curry favor with them, basically the most uh, the, the the biggest gift you could you could offer them with your hands out is uh, is Donald Trump basically nuked from space when it comes to uh, when it comes to Twitter and and all other I mean he's been banned from all of them you know it's funny that he was banned from TikTok now you know uh, I'm not a big TikTok uh, consumer but I have a I have my doubts that Donald Trump even 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 had an account at TikTok but just to be safe he's also banned from TikTok and Snapchat and and several apps I'd never heard of so. You know, this is it's comprehensive and there's a reason for that. And it is to curry favor with those ascending into power who hate Donald Trump um, more than human beings should actually hate another person. Mm,
0: yeah. Good point. I'm a Christian conservative. And I think that that's probably uh, uh, an amen right there, even though you may not like him. Um, a that's a okay. woman
3: as well. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> oh, you had to throw that one in there. Um, I think it's clear. Uh, I want to say two things perhaps here, Uh, and of course, if you don't feel comfortable, because I know you're not an attorney, and neither am I, so I'm not going to try to pretend to be one, but from what I've heard and from what I've studied, Brandenburg v. Ohio is the case to kind of look at here in terms of the incitement of violence. Okay, now I know Twitter and Facebook, because I can already hear people who may be listening to this podcast, and hopefully you'll continue to listen to it to the end, um, saying, well, they're a company and they can do what they want, but but let's just kind of roll the tape back. We'll get to that in a minute and just say, well, let's just talk about it from a legal standpoint um, uh, in terms of uh, just that incitement of violence idea, which is hopefully, and I think ideally what uh, Twitter is, is basing its policies on is certain Uh, strictures that we have in the United States about free speech. Um, And you cannot incite violence. So that comes from our Constitution. It comes from the United States. Um, But Brandenburg v. Ohio is a case in which shows very clearly that you must directly incite violence if you're going to be accused of inciting violence, which means you must call for violence. It is very clear from those two tweets that he did not do that. And it is very clear to me, too, that while he was using an fairness, militant language when he had his public speech, because they're going to say broader context, broader context. So the broader context is that speech that he gave before the Capitol riot. It's very clear to me there too, that he was not um, inciting violence there as well, because if you quote him fully, he says, go there peaceably. Um, So in my mind, if we're gonna talk about incitement of violence, I'm just, and I'm, uh, let's even remove it from social media and just uh, let's go take their Twitter terms and say broader context. There are a couple people who actually directly perhaps incited violence way more than Donald Trump. So, for instance, Chris Cuomo with Who Said Protests Have to Be Peaceful? Let's push aside the fact that they were protesting for two very different reasons and let's just talk about the philosophies here. Um, uh, saying protests don't have to be peaceful seems like almost a direct incitement of violence. And then you have Nicole Hannah Jones on CBS telling the world that uh, anybody with a rational mind can tell you that it's not right to destroy other people's property. But these are not rational times. So that's that's probably in fairness to her. That's probably less than Cuomo's quote there. Um, but uh, but it but it does essentially she's saying. Go destroy people's stuff um, because the cause is worthy. Um, and, and so Donald Trump didn't get any, even get anywhere close. And then you kind of jump into uh, concerning those two quotes. And then you jump into the idea that like, there's all sorts of other people on Twitter who probably should have been banned a long time ago, who are human rights violators. Um, I know everybody thinks Trump is a Nazi, but to date he's actually killed zero Jews. Um, so, uh, so I'm just wondering, I, I know that's a little bit of a rant, but, uh, maybe I'm the one that needs to go off and scream, but I'm just wondering if you can kind of speak to that in terms of, um, where, where do you situate yourself in terms of if you felt like his tweets incited violence?
3: Well, you know, as, you, as you very well pointed out, there are much worse examples in very contemporary examples of uh, getting closer to inciting violence through speech. And as you mentioned, the, the law on this is pretty, is pretty clear, or I should say the legal hurdle, it must be, it must be leaped uh, to trigger um, legal trouble when it comes to inciting violence is quite high. It's higher than people think. It's certainly higher than our media thinks. Um, you know, Barack Obama. You know, there's a long-standing uh, uh, use of martial rhetoric when it comes to our politics. I'm going to fight for you. We're going to fight. You know, this is a war. The culture wars and all this stuff. You know, those things are used all the time. Actually, as you were, as you were talking, I was remembering. Um, if you you might remember, um, Sarah was it? Yeah, Sarah Palin had a Facebook ad that had targets over districts in the state of Arizona. And when Gabby Giffords was shot by a lunatic who had, didn't even have a Facebook account, um, you know, it was blamed. That shooting was blamed on because her district was targeted, right? So little targets on, on a map on Facebook. Sarah Palin was blamed for her getting shot for stuff like that. Um, So there's a, and, and Barack Obama used to say, you know, um, you know, you got to fight. If, if they punch you, you punch them back twice as hard. I mean, there's, there are myriad examples of this all through uh, you know all through our political life, just in the last ten years. And so the idea, it, it, it seems it's funny. It seems like whenever somebody on the right uses routine martial language when it comes to politics, it's an incitement to violence. But when somebody who's not, who's not a Republican um, uses the same kind of language, it's uh, it's fine. It's just fine. So there's there's a clear double standard here, I think, in our in our political and, and media culture, and and you know if you read the president's speech at his rally, if you if and if you watch it. He said flat out, we are going to, um, I don't even think he said the, the word march. He might have said the word march, but he said, you know, you know how, how Trump speaks. It, it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, his words sometimes don't connect. But he said, we're going to um, go down to the Capitol and we're going to um, protest peacefully and patriotically. He said that explicitly, those two words. He did not incite this uh, this riot, which I agree with you from the top of this podcast, was absolutely disgusting. And everybody... Who uh, was in any way involved in, in illegal activity needs to be identified. And, and happily, these idiots uh, film themselves committing crimes, so it makes it real <laughs> easy on the cops now. Uh, even taking selfies with cops. So anybody who did anything illegal needs to be, uh, you know, captured, arrested, and prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Because that should not be happening in the United States. It's actually a little less infrequent than we'd like to remember. But this it cannot stand. You cannot have that and have and have a democracy and have an American culture that we've all known and grown up with.
0: Yeah, absolutely agree. So, I, I mean, I think the real thing is, is that, like, I voted for Trump in full transparency. Of course, that's going to get me canceled now. But, uh, but this is not a Trump thing. This is not a MAGA thing. This is th- – there are other implications to this. And so now let's wade into the other implications. Uh, because uh, – so people who have Reddit posts uh, for Trump are being banned. And, and I'll just be fully transparent, to be fair – I don't know. I couldn't keep up with everything that's being banned lately, so I don't know exactly what's being said in some of these places. But I'm just I'm just going through the the laundry list here, um, and uh, so Reddit's banning uh, people and um, community forums, uh, and then of course the highest profile thing that's happened since then this is um, is Parler was uh, had its. Had a terms of service violation, according to Apple, and they were kicked off the Apple Store. Then they were kicked off the Google Store, and then uh, beyond that, I, I was uh, I was thinking, well, I've. Uh, Uh, probably people can still, if they've got parlor, they can still use it on their phone, but they made sure that didn't happen either because then Amazon sent them a term of service, uh, violation and then shut them off in 24 hours. And so now their app is 100%, um, unoperational, uh, because they no longer have a place to host it anymore. Um, so it's, it's hard to say that, um, we're overreacting or that they're, um, that, uh, there's legitimacy to this thing when we're starting to see some of the implications of what's taking place uh, now in the aftermath of what happened to Trump. So it's hard for us even to come to this situation with an open mind and say, this. there's, there's not more to what's going on here than just the fact that Trump is sometimes foolish in the way that he uses his rhetoric. Um, because I think that's an objective truth too. But as equally as objective as there's some, there's some issues here uh, about free speech that we have to wade into. So um, I guess I'm just wondering in terms of implications, um, do you think we're right to, uh, and, and it's not conspiracy theory or it's it's not overreacting to say, well, they're coming for Trump and then they came for Parler and guess who they're coming for next?
3: You know, you know, sometimes you're not paranoid, they really are out to get you. Um, and, and I think the, the idea, I think what we've learned over the last, basically all through 2020 up until now, is that there doesn't seem to be any, any principled or limiting principle when it comes to um, basically suppressing speech or going after, going after people on the right and canceling their accounts um, because the justifications are thin um if you think they're going to stop i i think it's unhealthy and you're kidding yourself if you think well you know first they were shadow banning us but you know they'll stop doing that or it'll just stop at that you know oh now they're canceling all of these people um well you know maybe it'll stop at that you know it, you can't sit around thinking that you're hoping it's going to stop i mean this is this is a this is a, a semi truck of uh, a freedom-crushing semi-truck coming right at you, and you can't yeah. just keep standing there hoping that it's going to stop. You have to do something. You either have to get out of the way or you have to, you know, you got to do something. It's going to run you over. Um, if, it, if it isn't today, it'll be tomorrow. Uh, what's interesting about, um, you know, Parler is that, yes, um, Amazon Web Services, AWS, which is a big sponsor of the NFL, by the way, they're everywhere. Um, <laughs> you know, they're, they're one of the most, in You're fact- They're the number one. Provider. Yeah, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Twitter. Those combined are some of the most, some of the largest and most powerful corporations in the history of human civilization. Amazon is is what a is it a ten billion dollar company now? It was only like three, two or three years ago that I think Apple was the first company to have a one billion dollar um, valuation, and now all of them have uh, one billion or more. And so when these when these powerful corporations that are really unaccountable they're more powerful than our government is. I think that's I think you can prove that pretty easily that the government seems to be afraid of these companies because they're not going to regulate them and they and they can happen to you if they can if they can cancel Donald Trump, they can cancel other people as well. But the thing about parlor, and so the justification taking the parlor app off of their um, app stores and and then subsequently, Um, So, yeah, so you'd be able to use Parler on your, you know, on your web browser, or if you had it on your phone before they took it away, you could, you could, I I presume you could still use it on your phone. But we never got to test that, because immediately, Amazon took uh, Parler right off of its servers, for which they paid. Um, And why? Because these companies, uh, encouraged, frankly, by the Democrats who were were lying and or didn't know, let's, let's be really, let's just be honest about this. They didn't know. It was too soon to know. But we now know. Uh, I think as this was accurate, at least as, as of yesterday. Uh, do you know how many people that they've arrested at, um, at the Capitol Hill riots had parlor accounts?
0: Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask you about
3: that. Zero, 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 many. That's how many. But a parlor was nuked from space by Amazon Web Services because supposedly parlor was being used to organize that riot. Yes. You know where that riot was actually organized? Facebook. Facebook was probably the most the most uh, common way for these people to communicate and get together. In fact, um, Antifa has been using Facebook for years to organize all well, at least all of last year, to organize all of the riots they have carried out all through the summer in cities all across America. But Facebook doesn't suffer any um, a- any any ill effects to this. But Parler, which just happens to be the number one competitor to Twitter. Mm-hmm. which just happens to be the only social media app where free speech is actually um you know where they say they're I'm not we're not going to ban people for what they say we're going to allow you to say what you want and let the people figure it out which used to be something we call the American way which yeah. used to be trusting the trusting people to figure things out on their own and treating people like adults you know it, so all of that is why parlor got got destroyed and it's really nothing else that, other than that because the justifications that these extremely powerful companies used to to destroy them turned out actually not to be true.
0: Yeah, so, all right, so I gotta read this because this is one of the things I wanted to ask you about. In that same post that Twitter made about their reason, their their reason for canceling Trump and then their assessment of it, uh, this is what they actually said. I thought this was very interesting. Uh, They, in their determination, uh, they say that it's based upon a couple of factors. The very last factor that it was based upon is this. Plans for future armed protests have already g- begun proliferating. And then it, here's the key on and off Twitter. So, in that, they acknowledge the fact that Twitter was used to do the very thing that they're accusing Parler of doing.
3: Exactly. And so, you know, so when, when, when I said earlier that you can't be too paranoid because it turns out these things end, end up being true, you know, when, when the justification for, for destroying Parler utterly destroying it in the matter of you know 20 hours it was a thanos snap
0: <laughs> yeah
3: and and so you know when these things happen you keep saying well it can't get any worse you know i'm you know my friends think of me as kind of cynical it's like here's here's the here's the secret guys it can always get worse and it yeah. almost and it almost always gets worse
0: so, so you're an optimistic cynic it could always be worse
3: but again, um, just just thinking about this, you know, the, the to, to kind of tie this into the justifications for all of these speech bans and the canceling of people and um, and shaming of people and all of this stuff is is because it's it, if you were to ask base Facebook and Twitter and, and big tech um, what they're interested interested in, and it is protecting our it is protecting us. It's making sure that we're safe. These are safety decisions. We're talking about words. Yeah. And we we did, we now live in a society in which this uh, there's a blog I read a lot called uh, Ace of Spades HQ, and the um, uh, you know the proprietor of that Ace, uh, he's written he's written this a lot actually lately in the last uh, last couple months, but he says that uh, I think this is brilliant. Conservative speech is violence, and left wing violence is speech. Mm. So if you say something, you know, just words are violence, and so we have to protect you because, you know, your safety is at risk if you hear something that you don't like or offends you. Yet, riots in the streets, setting, you know, cars and buildings on fire, beating almost to death store, elderly store owners trying to protect their, their businesses from being utterly destroyed by Antifa and BLM rioters. Um, all of that is just, according to our, our media betters, speech. This is the voice of the unheard, Yet, if you just want to speak on social media and you say something that the left doesn't like, you are lucky if you're just canceled because worse can come.
0: Yeah. Well, this is a so here's the implications part just to kind of tie it together. The implications part is one. This is a free speech issue. Now, uh, again, people can say, well, they are just free market actors acting on the free market and they can make this decision. Um, However, you already spoke to the fact that uh, some of these companies are bigger than countries. You you think about Amazon being a $10 billion company. They make more money than multiple nations uh, put together, Um, and they certainly have a ton of power. Um, which is where I gotta I gotta bring this up. I wanna I wanna talk about the free market in just a moment, and that assertion that this is just a free market uh, decision, and they're entitled to make that as a free market company, as a free market actor. Um, but I'll, but I'm, but let's just talk about their power, um, kind of on a large scale. So based upon what uh, Twitter just did specifically. Um, the, U- the Ugandans are up for an election, and they've talked about uh, stopping Twitter from being used in the country by internet service providers. And ironically, uh, I, re- I agree with it. I-, I can't be original here because I agree with everybody who's spoken to this. The irony of this thing is just absolutely hysterical, and these people are so stupid that they cannot see themselves any longer because they're so self-righteous. But here is Twitter's tweet about Uganda saying this company is too powerful and they can influence our elections adversely so we don't want them interfering with what we're doing. So here's this tweet from Twitter in response. Ahead of the Ugandan election, we're hearing reports that internet service providers are being ordered to block social media and messaging apps. We strongly condemn internet shutdowns. They are hugely harmful, violate basic human rights and the principles of Hashtag open internet. Now, the obvious irony here is the Hunter Biden stuff and the fact that they shut down every source of information that they could try to get their hands on. Um... Uh, around that story leading up to our election, but Ugandans, for the, to their credit, are not stupid, and they realize that uh, that Twitter is a threat to them, or at least they think they are. So, uh, so I think that that kind of um, at least speaks to whether or not it puts to rest who knows, but uh, at least speaks to the idea that these companies are very, very powerful, and that they understand their power, um, and and. And their power on free speech. So the second thing I want to just ask you about is the free market question. All right. So I, 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 maybe this is conjecture on your part, and but still, feel, I want you to feel free to kind of just talk about what you have, what you know, and what you've experienced and studied about this question. Do you believe? And maybe I should say, is there any doubt in your mind that what actually took place with the banning of Parlor? Um, is monopolistic collusion, which means that these guys are not acting as good-hearted, free-spirited, free-market actors, that they're actually working together. The tech bros are working together to do what I think is a scary thing, to quash a small business that's actually competing with them. And, and not only competing, was beating them in terms of being number one on the App Store. And then I, you may say something about this, but I gotta squeeze this in here. The fact that uh, Jack Dorsey, as soon as Parler was banned, takes a, a screenshot of his uh, app being now number one on the list where Parler once was, now that they've totally gotten rid of Parler. Um, so in your mind, is monopolistic collusion uh, something that is being taking place among amazon google twitter facebook
3: yeah i don 't believe in coincidences yeah. uh, not not coincidence coincidences that strong um, it's uh, it was obvious collusion and it's it's really whether they, um, whether they had lunch together with masks on and 17 feet apart and just passed <laughs> notes and texted each other to tell them, "We're going to do this at this scheduled time," is irrelevant. Um, you know, the thing about Silicon Valley is that it's completely dominated by leftist groupthink. They, they literally this is, again, it goes back a little bit to the idea of a conservative speech makes me feel unsafe. Yeah. They, they literally don't interact with people that disagree with them in any meaningful way. And in fact, we, we over the last several years, uh, all my, I think pretty much all through the Trump, uh, the Trump uh, presidency, people on the right ha- have felt more and more marginalized and, and more and more afraid to actually say what they believe uh, in in public places like, you know, where you can be identified like your job. Um, you know, it's 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 become dangerous to say you support President Trump, to say that you think he's been a good president. To, to, to express conservative and libertarian ideas, because it is against, especially if you're in Silicon Valley, you're against, you know, you're going very much against the grain. It, it's a, it's a groupthink mentality. So whether or not they, they actively colluded with each other, the fact that all of them basically smashed uh, Parler at the same time and crushed it, it was like literally 12 hours before they were alive and kicking and doing, and doing well. 12 hours later, they are completely obliterated. Um, that is not, that, that was on purpose. And it was, it was coordinated um, either by, you know, a mob mentality of the big tech people, or, you know, they all kind of knew they were gonna do it, they had to do it. And I think they were basically waiting for the coast to be clear, as we, as we discussed earlier in here. It's like, you know, are they doing this to curry favor with the, um, with the Democrats? That's part of it, but the other part of it is that they don't fear Trump anymore. Um, they, don't fear, they don't fear any, any, um, any backlash or any, any ramifications for this grave abuse of their immense power over um, people's ability to communicate freely. The thing is, the, these companies, um, especially the social media giants, exist only because of special exemptions in the law that they've been granted by the federal government. That, and we will get we'll get into that maybe a little more detail later. But that is the so-called Section two hundred and thirty. They would not be able to exist without um, the Section two hundred and thirty uh, freeing them from any liability for for what people use or what people say on their platforms, right? And so, um, if they didn't have that, if, if if they were held liable for everything anybody might say on their platform, they would you know it, you can't have that. It, the, the business plan doesn't work. But that is only if they become an open platform and have. You know, good faith, reasonable terms of service, on and and really only police speech when it is egregiously uh, bad, when it does rate, when it does actually get over the hurdle of actually inciting violence. But they've they've not done that now. They've they've become publishers, so they get to enjoy um, being a publisher and also enjoy never being sued by anyone for what's said on their thing, as if they're a platform. They're having it both ways, and they really need to just pick one. Uh, you know, this this. Just one more thing I just wanted to say on this, on this issue. You're talking about like the free market. Um, and, you know, where's the where's the market in this? And I've heard a lot of arguments that uh, that this is, uh, you know, look, this is just the free market at work. I guess, uh, you know, a, a, a company can choose to crush parlor if it wants to. You know, a company yeah, can decide to not just go somewhere, somewhere else. Or, yeah, they can go somewhere else. You know, it's, it's funny. It's like for so long they said, you know, conservatives, you don't like Twitter, go make your own Twitter. Well, yeah. somebody did. And then what happens? The, the, the big left uh, big tech companies crush it. It's like, we, we, we did the really hard thing, we built our own Twitter, and now you destroy it like a Thanos snap, it's gone. And so we now live in a world where, you know, talking about the markets and, and, and the rights of corporations or people to do and run their businesses as they see fit, we live in a world where a Christian, a, a, a Christian baker in Colorado is told you gotta bake that damn cake. It doesn't matter what objections you have, you gotta bake that, that damn cake. And we also live in the same world where the biggest, most powerful corporations in the world are not told to post that damn tweet. They're allowed to make decisions based on their own values, but a small baker in in Colorado cannot. This This is, you know... So a small a small baker in Colorado is a public accommodation and has to take all comers. But for something much more important and much more widespread, Twitter and Facebook and Google do not have to be a public accommodation for speech and especially political speech. And it's it's so bad that they got away with with crushing and and banning the the oldest newspaper in the country, the New York Post, reporting a factual story that was going to harm Joe Biden. Again, yeah. you think about: Is this coincidence? Are they really adhering to their terms of service? No, they're not. They were they were rigging this this the communications about this election in favor yeah. of their favored candidate because Hunter That's Biden's troubling. story was going to hurt um, Joe Biden. So they just they did what they could do. They crushed it, they destroyed it, they took it off. Um, people didn't know about it. You know, you and I do because we are conservatives and we travel in conservative circles and we read conservative blogs and we follow conservative people on Twitter and other social media. So we knew about that story but the vast majority of the public did not. And it might've affected their vote but we'll never know because they didn't.
0: Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. IndyThinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to indythinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but
1: infinitely more when you think for yourself.